stories about yourself how do you end them we learn a lot about storytelling from the stories that we tell and the stories that are told to us and so we know a lot intuitive if we look at our oral storytelling that can work out actually a lot of things about where do i start (laughs) what's the structure of this how how do i end it and and just with the, the the thing you're just mentioning about memoir you know it's kind of a case as with all writing where the writer says it's important to me to tell you this story this way. On this episode of Playtime, the art and craft of memoir writing with Eric Charles May, Associate Professor of Fiction Writing at Columbia College in Chicago. I am W.C. Turk. Plus, our featured indie artist, the new song, Siesta Key, from Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter Ray Grant. Grab a table for two. Pina colada for me, and here's one for you. Siesta key. Ba-da-da-da. Siesta key. Ba-da-da-da. Boston over music. As the man strums his chords Orange skies on fire Will they light up the shore? Eric Charles May is an associate professor in the fiction writing program at Columbia College in Chicago. Professor May is a Chicago native and former reporter for the Washington Post. His work has appeared in Fish Stories, F, and the Chicago Tribune, to name just a few, as well as the personal essay anthology, and I so love this title, and I want it on a t-shirt, Briefly Knocked Unconscious by a Low-Flying Duck. There, there, there seems to be a marketing synergy or, or a, a marketing event waiting to happen there. Yeah, well, you should tell the folks, I'll, I'll tell the folks at Second Story, because uh, that's the anthology anthology that's those are the folks who published the anthology the 2022 let's just write conference hosted by the chicago writers association breath 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 eric was a presenter of how to get meaningful memoir material bedrock faith is eric's first novel his website is ericcharlesmay.com and we'll link to that in the notes below and after all that i suppose it, it would be rather, rather silly eric if you weren't here welcome buddy and and thanks for having me it's wonderful that that you're joining us and we spoke at the conference a little bit and so i know you're you're getting zoomed out with the covid zoom culture i mean it was a blessing and a curse you know it was a blessing in the fact that it allowed us to deliver an educational experience to our students we would not have been able to do it would have been a lost uh, year without zoom however it was really you know and for the students more than for me, actually. I mean, I only had to do, you know, 
three classes a week, maybe occasionally a faculty meeting. The students were sometimes on Zoom for six hours or more in a day. But they're kids. And, what are they going to be doing otherwise? They'll be looking yeah. at TikTok for that six hours. Yeah, but it's 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 like it, it's hard to keep your focus. I mean, TikTok is kind Indeed. of like playtime. At school, <laughs> you actually have to keep your focus, and that's just hard to do after a while. Yeah, if you're on a if you're on a Zoom thing. Yeah, let's talk about your book, Bedrock Faith. And I have an angle here that pertains to memoir writing, but give listeners a brief synopsis of of the book, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, well, my novel is uh, Bedrock Faith is about a guy who is terrorizing his neighbors with the word of God. Uh, a guy gets out of prison after 14 years, moves back in with his widow mom and his staid middle class African-American neighbors are quite worried because he was quite the terror before he uh, uh, went away. However, they find very quickly that he has had a religious conversion while in prison. And uh, which turns out to be a real problem because he sets himself up as the sort of moral judge and jury of the neighborhood and starts getting into it with one neighbor on his block after another on religious grounds. Each encounter with the neighbor having a more serious uh, ending mm -hmm. uh, until finally that some of the neighbors start to retaliate. And that ramps things up even further until there is, uh, as I put it, uh, a tragic and irrevocable event. In Bedrock Faith, we are taken to the fictional neighborhood of Parkland on the on Chicago's far south side. Kind of, uh, kind of patterned after, may, maybe not kind of, maybe specifically patterned after the neighborhood that you grew up in, in Morgan Park. Uh, yes, I grew up uh, for, for the most of my time in Morgan Park. My family lived on 111th place in Racine, which is about, oh, about half a mile west of Halstead mm -hmm. and maybe a mile or so east of Western Avenue. And, which was a very uh, diff different neighborhood than it is than it is now, five years ago when you were a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That part of Morgan Park that I lived in has been an, an all-black neighborhood since it was Prairie. The, the original folks out there were white, and they lived west of what is now Vincennes. Mm -hmm. Blacks first started moving into that part of uh, the area in the late 19th century. Because mm -hmm. for many years, Morgan Park was divided. The Vincennes was more or less the dividing line. And blacks lived east of it and whites lived west of it. Uh, the high school, uh, Morgan Park High School, was always integrated. Uh, although, well, as my mother would say, because she grew up out there, she said, well, it had blacks and whites in it, but it really wasn't integrated. It, there was a real caste system, unfortunately, at that time, yeah. uh, in which uh, blacks were pretty much kept out of a lot of the, a lot of the fancier, more fun social stuff mm -hmm. you know the newspaper mm -hmm. the yearbook and so on and so on but blacks and whites did go to school there together and so it was uh and it grew into being a working class middle class black neighborhood mm -hmm. and and there was a steel mill there on vincennes at about 103rd street and there of course were the steel mills in southeast chicago northwest indiana so there was a lot of work you know there was work to be had yeah and so good uh, union work Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And uh, I mean, uh, my uh, uh, my my mom's dad worked for International Harvester. Okay. Uh, but uh, as it was oftentimes the case with blacks in industry, they were the last hired and the first to be laid off. Yeah. If anyone was going to be laid off, they laid off the black guys first. <laughs> At times, it was work, you know, and and so it was a neighborhood that. For many years, blacks who lived further in in the city kind of made fun of it. They, my mother okay. says they called Morgan Park the country <laughs> because uh, there were many vacant lots. And in fact, you can still ride around uh, my old part of that, uh, the neighborhood mm -hmm. and see vacant lots. You know, mm -hmm. Something you hardly ever see in a lot of Chicago neighborhoods these days. You know, vacant lots that have never been built on. Yeah, It wasn't yeah. a vacant lot. Like it's a vacant lot because there was a house there and the house was decrepit and bailed down. It's like no one's ever built a house there ever. It was uh, a, a lot of people uh, turned over these vacant lots and, and grew food in them. I can still remember as a, a little boy walking down mm -hmm. streets and the corn was, was higher than I was mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the late summer. And people grew cabbages and onions and watermelons and what have you to uh, supplement their, you know, their larders. There were guys who would come by and sell uh, fresh, pristine dirt wow. out of trucks. Yeah, and you could use that uh, if you wanted to uh, start a, a a garden somewhere. And so, so the so, black neighborhood was green before before the rest of the yeah. world was green. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and it was a and still is a very tight knit neighborhood. You have yeah. families who I can still go back to my old <laughs> block, and there are still a couple of folks who I grew up with uh -huh. who are still living on the block. And so it was a, a lot of churches and large churches too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it was a, it was a, a tight knit neighborhood, a neighborhood where everybody kind of, everybody knew each other. And a lot of that was centered around the churches, around the, uh, the park, Ada Park at mm -hmm. 111th, and 112th and Ada. Mm -hmm. And also uh, the, uh, the grade school, which is John D. Shoot. Okay. So okay. If you're headed, uh, uh, south on the expressway 57. If you look at, at the 111th Street exit, uh -huh. there's a grade school hard by the expressway, and that's uh, John D. Shoots. That's the school that I and all of my siblings okay. graduated from, and also the grade school that my mother and all of her siblings graduated from, and where my mother taught for most of her teaching. So I, I, I'm deviating a little bit from writing here, only because I, I want to pursue a little bit of this, and I, and I think it's it's beneficial for for people to to understand this and and you saw it with your own eyes lived it with your family and friends and neighbors that middle class has eroded on the on the south side and the far south side uh you you spoke about about industry being there and i used to do so that used to be part of a a group that helped foreclosure victims in inglewood and woodlawn and, mm -hmm. and People always ask me, how did it get like this? And, and I can point to redlining and the evaporation of industry jobs that, that robbed these middle-class neighborhoods of good-paying union jobs or made them. Is that an accurate place to begin in speaking about the issue that, that we face with, with communities on the south and west sides of, of the well, city? I think it depends on what south side neighborhood you're talking about. Okay. Because there are some south side neighborhoods, again, like, you know, parts of Morgan Park, Hill yes. Hill, that have not seen that kind of uh, thing at all. 
Yeah. And yeah. because a lot of the uh, the folks living there had had jobs, they were a lot of school teachers in my mm-hmm. in my neighborhood. School teachers. Let's see. On my block alone, my mom was a school teacher. Let's see. Uh, the Dawson Harald and Buster's mom was a school teacher. <laughs> Mister. Roberts worked for the Parks District. Mr. Govan drove a bus for the CTA. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Perkins was a, a mail carrier. Uh, Mr. Bell was a police officer. Mr. Purvis moved moved into the Roberts house. He and his family, I mean, he worked for Pullman. I got to say, so, I, I love that, that memory, man. Yeah, and so uh, it was that kind of, uh, and the doctor in the neighborhood, Dr. Pedro, who had offices on 111th Street, uh, he lived a block uh, west of us, which is not to say that, you know, that part of the city has not had it, it had its problems, yeah. but it, it wasn't the kind of sudden, you know, the, the economic rug was completely pulled out from under uh, yeah. Yeah. from under the neighborhood. What can we learn about that neighborhood that can be applied to to a potential remedy towards combating some of the issues that we see in other neighborhoods? Well, you know, it, the best uh, uh, firewall against poverty is a good yeah. job, you know, and there's a certain point where you're not going to government program your way out of the situation. <laughs> it's about jobs, 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 yeah. uh, the way it is for everybody else <laughs> and people having meaningful work. And by that, I, I mean, I mean, not just any kind of part time job you can call. Yeah. but a job that you could actually build a future on. I think this is, I just saw a story today where the unemployment rate is is lower than it's been in what? Almost 50 years. Almost 50 years, yeah. However, when you look at the <clears throat> kinds of jobs that people have, they're not the kind of jobs you can necessarily say, okay, now I can get married and have a family and buy a house. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With this kind of job. It's and those, job and that, that number is an average, by the way, and yeah. and, and swings wildly swings depending wildly. on the community that you're talking about. Yeah. But, you know, when you, but when, again, I'll say when you look at the kind of jobs, yeah. there, there are jobs that are not necessarily secure. There are jobs that, you know, your schedules is this one day, it's this another day, and you can't really... You, you can't depend on it like some of the jobs in the past where you, okay, as long as I come to work and don't start a riot and do my job, I'll, I'll probably have it. And, <laughs> uh, and that means I can, I can have some sort of some sense of security. Yeah. And, and that's how you get neighborhoods that are stable. Mm-hmm. When, the, when the job situation is unstable, then, then that rattles into, into the neighborhood. Yeah, and this yeah. and my comments aren't in any way to put down government programs, but at some and at some point, you know, having a great work ethic and job training doesn't do you any good if there aren't any jobs. Indeed, you indeed. know, you can have the best work ethic in the world, and if there aren't meaningful work for you to have, then you're you know you're so you know you're SOL. It's the reason why so many African Americans have left the city in the last 10, 20 years. Yeah, because they've gone to where the jobs are. They've gone to Texas. They've gone to uh, they've gone to Georgia and other places because that's where the jobs are. Yeah, and it's the reason why the blacks came here from the south in the first place. Yeah, uh, my my mom's mom had been a, taught in one room schools in Alabama. Black kids in one room schools. My mom's dad, when he got mustered out of the army after the first World War, he was working Chicago and he was stationed at Fort Grant here in Illinois. Mm-hmm. And Chicago was close. 
So that's why he wound up coming to Chicago and all of his other siblings wound up going to Pittsburgh and Buffalo because they had gone already, they went, either went after him or before him. But he looked up and he was in Illinois and he said, well, I'll just go to Illinois. I'll just go to Chicago. <laughs> and I'll just stay here, go to Chicago instead of going back home and then going all the way to Pittsburgh or someplace else. Charles M. Blow, who is a, a columnist for the New York Times, and in fact, his uh, memoir that I did a review of for the Tribune, <laughs> his memoir, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, is uh, premiering uh, as an opera. It's being done as an opera. Wow. And uh, he's a columnist. And he said that, you know, Blacks need to come back home, meaning to the South. They need to come back home, uh, bring their votes back home. Yeah. Uh, uh, turn Georgia and Alabama blue and uh, North Carolina, South Carolina too, perhaps, and, and come back to where they had been before they went north. And just overwhelm uh, redistricting. Do that, I don't know. Uh -huh. uh, but a, a number of them already have. You know, I mean, yeah, one of the reasons yeah. why Texas has changed is so many folks who were Black were yep. displaced from Mississippi and Louisiana, and they wound up going to Texas. And of course, uh, because they were being driven away by the by the uh, hurricane katrina there was a lot of government jobs that were necessary to, to process all these suddenly homeless people mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is one of the reasons why the texas economy was so good yeah. but so you you, know, you wanted to say something about the, the my book and and how it might tie the memoir oh, i and, did uh, yes and, and I, I built out a whole case here we got off on we got off on a bit of a tangent but i think that gives that gives, yeah, that gives some good strong context mm -hmm. How much of the detail in shops and businesses that you describe in the novel, I, I'm guessing that they're they're based on real places and people that you knew growing up in Morgan Park, yeah? Well, they're, they're based on the kinds of places okay. that okay. I knew. The neighborhood where I lived had a lot of private small businesses. Mm -hmm. There was mm -hmm. a drugstore on 111th and uh, Troop, and it was a small drugstore, and it had a little pharmacy in the back. Uh -huh. The pharmacist was African-American, owned by, you know, it was an African-American drugstore. It had a soda fountain and everything. In fact, yeah. the first woman I ever saw with an Afro was uh, a woman who was working there uh, behind the soda counter in, the, in that drugstore. That just had to be sometime in the late 50s, early 60s. I had never seen a woman with her hair like that. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was great, you know, but it, <laughs> but it, was, it was, I had never seen anyone wearing their hair like that before. And there was uh, a dry cleaners across the alley from us where our house was. Yeah. And there was a hardware store on 111th Street. And there were a number of small mom and pop grocery stores. Mm -hmm. uh, one in particular was at 111th Street and Bishop. It was owned by a family named uh, mm -hmm. Bird. Mm -hmm. And of course, everybody called it Bird Store. And a guy who lived across the street from me, his uncle ran a barber shop on 111th Street. And there was a realtor on 111th street and i guess 111th street and loomis mm -hmm. and so the neighborhood had always had small businesses mm -hmm. uh, and this is of course before there were lots of supermarkets in fact my mother who grew up on 110th street 110th place i should say mm -hmm. 110th place in bishop and she said that she remembered on 111th street there being a chicken store and they had live chickens Wow. And you would come in and you would order your chicken. And uh, it was a married couple that ran the business. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the wife uh, took the orders. 
and, and then, uh, you know, made change and everything. And uh, the husband worked out back, killing the chickens. You'd order a chicken. He'd go out back, kill a chicken, yeah. fuck it, gut it, you know, get it all ready. And you'd go off and do some other shopping. And when you came back, you had your nice, freshly killed chicken, chicken wrapped yeah. up, ready to go, white paper, white string, and you took it home. Now, when the supermarkets opened, when a, there was a jewel on 111th and Halsted, and then right across Kitty Corner was a high-low, which is like a precursor of Aldi's, although Hilo did actually have a meat market, a whole fresh meat market in it. And when that happened, some of the neighborhood stores couldn't survive it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that was happening in some white neighborhoods too, is that <laughs> once the big supermarket chain came in, it became uh, rough going uh, for uh, if you were like a butcher or if you were like a, because uh, um, you could just get stuff for a lot, lot less money. Uh, and, they, but there the, were still the, small big, businesses. There were yeah, there were there were a lot of there were little candy stores. Uh, my grandmother ran a yeah. candy store on 111th Street, and uh, there was you know a shoe repair shop, mm -hmm. and so there were small businesses. So that I very much remember, and that I very much put in the book. So, and and the reason I brought that up is it sounds like bedrock faith, and I, I know you took a little bit of issue with this. Um, in our conversation before the introduction, um, that bedrock faith uh, is is a kind of a fictionalized memoir, maybe a, a hybrid between fiction and memoir. Or, or does well, that just help have, you as as an author to anchor? Yeah, I mean, in, I mean, as a as a fiction writer, yeah. you know, a lot of fiction writers wind up drawing profoundly on the worlds uh, sure. that that produce them. Yeah. Uh, you know, Faulkner was from central Mississippi. Well, guess where most of his novels are set. Toni Morrison was from Lorraine, Ohio. Guess where her first novel is set. And <laughs> and even in her second and third novel, Sula and Song of Solomon are set in towns very much like Lorraine. That's not all that unheard of mm -hmm. uh, for authors to do that. It's not like I take issue with the idea of it being a memoir-esque or autobiographical. It's just that memoir to me is very kind of specific where you're telling particular kinds of stories yeah. about this is what happened to me mm -hmm. or an autobiographical fiction is very much it, it, it my uh, understanding of it if i were to define it mm -hmm. would be you know you're drawing very much on a particular situation or series of events mm -hmm. that actually happened mm -hmm. and you take something like bastard out of carolina by dorothy allison yeah. Uh, and which uh, is narrated by uh, uh, a girl who is subsequently later on in the novel uh, sexually assaulted by her stepdad. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what happened to Dorothy Allen. Mm -hmm. That would be something you might call autobiographical. The reason the reason I bring that up, and, and I just had this conversation with uh, yeah. Scott Stantis, the editorial uh, cartoonist for the for the Tribune. I had an experience overseas that then came back the day of. The September 11th attacks. Oh my. And so I wanted to tell that story, but I needed to completely fictionalize it because it, because telling that story at the time was far, far too close to the epicenter of the people that committed September 11th, mm -hmm. the September 11th attacks. Yeah. So I, I guess I guess my question is, does a memoir have to be fully fact-checked 
and 100% accurate. You know, the agreement you're making with the reader is uh-huh. that this is true. No, I don't know anybody who, who necessarily fact checks a memoir. However, in getting to what you were talking about just now, if you're doing a memoir that deals with some sort of historical event, mm-hmm. well then yeah, you better make sure uh, that what you're putting in there is, is accurate because I can guarantee you someone eyeballs are gonna be looking at it and saying, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, this didn't happen. An uh, example I used this past weekend was uh, if you're gonna do a memoir Got a fire truck going by <laughs> right by me. I, I call it texture. Uh, my, my office. If you're doing a, a memoir about something that happened at the '68 convention here in yeah, Chicago, yeah. you bet you better not be be saying anything like, "Well, on that hot June night, uh, we all went down to Lincoln Park for the demonstration because, of course, uh, the '68 convention didn't happen in June, <laughs> June of '68." Right. Sometimes, you know, I, I you will see certain books where they got a certain something not correct. But no, I, I don't know anyone uh, who would say of a memoir, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to fact check your memoir. Mm-hmm. Although sometimes uh, the people involved, if they feel like, no, you got something way off, they, yeah. you, they, usually a lot of times folks are not shy about letting you know. One of the things I, uh, uh, I mentioned uh, this past weekend at the Writers' Conference was... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Vladimir Nabokov published a memoir. This happened before he wrote Lolita. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't famous. And, and the memoir flopped. Flopped so badly that Nabokov was at a party with an editor from the comp- publisher that had published the memoir and the <laughs> editor had had never heard of it. Wow, <laughs> wow. Um, and so, but then later after Lolita came out, it, there was a renewed interest in him. So they republished it. Uh, only now Nabokov had a chance to go back and do some more research and actually talk to his siblings and uh-huh. found out that certain things that he had put in the memoir, uh, the first version, turned out not to be correct. And he was able to correct them, yeah. the second version, which is titled Speak Memory. So in that regard, yeah, you know, I mean, folks aren't going to fact check, but, it, but the understanding that you have with the reader is, is that this is true. And, and you want to try to make it as true as you can. Mm-hmm. And being a former, you know, newspaper reporter, when, if, if there is some doubt, see if you can verify it. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I, I found as a reporter that it's the, it's the fact, it, it's the fact that you don't double check that comes back to bite you in the keister. Maybe there's a there's a difference between writing about a, a historical event yeah. or an event that everybody knows mm-hmm. so uh if you know september 11th happened on a on a tuesday and, yeah. and you want to put it on a saturday it was a terrible weekend blah 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 um people are going to call you out on that so Absolutely. um but but if it's something personal uh, uh somebody who was at your uh your uh, your presentation um over the weekend at let's just write leah grover is her name is writing a memoir about the the passing of her husband yeah. uh, from from cancer. I I'd say probably the the fact checking unless maybe there there's a medical a medical issue or medical verbiage it is probably not so imperative. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean I mean it, imperative in the sense that there's probably not going to be anybody who's going to be able to counter you on it. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. In other yeah. words, if it's if it's private issues, you know, you know, who's going to be able to call you up and say, no, 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 it didn't happen like that. Yeah. But that still yeah. does not relieve you, the author, <laughs> of trying <laughs> just because you. Just because you're saying to yourself, well, no one can really check me on this, uh, doesn't mean you, the author, aren't still trying to make it as accurate as you can. Mm -hmm. And also, sometimes our memories can be fuzzy. Mm -hmm. And we can honestly think something happened on a certain date or in a certain place, and then it didn't. It's never a bad idea to, you know, ask around, ask around the family, ask around your friends, you know, to see if, is this actually how it happened. Now, sometimes you can't do that because what you're writing about is probably maybe something that said relative or friend would not be happy about you writing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if that's the case, well, yeah. then, you know, you just have to go, well, all right. If, I'm not gonna if I could interrupt you there, because you brought up two really important points to memoir writing. Uh, the first is uh, memories. And so I want to, I want to ask you how you flush out memories and details. Is it copious amounts of notes is it sketches? Is it music? You brought up a, a number of uh, a number of exercises in your presentation on Saturday. I, you know, I try to rely on what do I see. Yeah. You know, when I when I think of something that has happened to me in the past, you know, when I think about it, well, what's my what's my image mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. of it uh, that I have in in my head? Because a lot of times, I think this is true for most people. Yeah. We, we're, we're, we're carrying around a whole treasure trove of imagery yeah. in our head when we think, oh, well, uh, and, that, and, when, and that when we think of things like our old neighborhood, our high school, jobs we worked at, we don't necessarily see a narrative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, this event happening and then this event happening and this event happening. Sometimes we do, do with certain stories, but a lot of times what we actually are seeing is kind of like an image, images that has stayed in our heads for some reason. And, and why this is, why some images and, and like I say, little memory clips stay in our heads and others don't, who knows? You know, Virginia Woolf says, you know, why do we remember how the light and shadow played on the bushes on the way to the beach and not the day at the beach itself? We, it's just in that kind of, unusually wonderful way our minds with memory work. And so that when we think back on things, oftentimes that's what we're actually seeing. We're not necessarily always seeing a whole narrative story. When I think about my old block that I lived on in Morgan Park, it's just a series of images in my head of it at certain times, you know, at different times of the year. Mm -hmm. so, so you put that into, into Bedrock Faith, a novel. If someone is writing about that neighborhood as a memoir how do they how do they avoid embellishing or is that a potential tool in telling in telling the story embellish in what way you know i guess yeah, it, yeah, yeah. again you know look we do everybody does memoir all the time any pies as big as as big as the sky or yeah, you know, you know some, something like yeah, that yeah yeah i mean you know every time we, we're sitting around a table with folks and we're telling stories about stuff that happened to us in our past that's memoir mm -hmm. yeah well i remember the time when i was a kid when i was 10 and then <laughs> this happened and that and so and so said this and so and so said that and at the end of it 
uh, you know, nobody ever says to the teller, particularly if it's been a good story, <laughs> well, how do you know that's true? Facts do you have? Uh, how do you, how can we be sure that so-and-so actually said that yeah. or your yeah. father or whatever said that? And so <laughs> what we do assume is that the person telling us the story, unless you're talking about a cultural thing where embellishing the truth is part of the understanding of this mm -hmm. is this is how we tell stories to each other. And there mm -hmm. are cultures in which embellishing the story is perfectly okay because embellishing the story is kind of what is, 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 is expected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But usually in American culture, it's like somebody tells you about this, this car accident they were in when they were, you know, 16 or somebody yeah. tells you something that happened to them on their job. Our assumption is, is that the essence of what we're getting here is the truth. There's kind of this uh, this agreement between this understanding, and most readers are okay with that. Yeah, it's yeah. when it turns out that someone is is saying something that never happened. That guy wrote a a, a million little pieces, right. you know, what yeah. it which he tried to sell. It. My understanding is he tried to sell it as a novel. They didn't want it as a novel. No, no, it's got to be a memoir, and got you know, taken to the woodshed by Oprah for having, <laughs> for having done that. But the understanding is what you're giving us is the truth. In the same way that when someone tells you a good story, your assumption is, is that this person is not lying to me. Such an important, important point and cautionary tale for, uh, for every memoir writer. I wanted to talk about this because this came up. I, I've, I've been, been working with uh, a Marine combat veteran, Tony Story is his name, who wants to write a memoir. I wrote and published a memoir about my experiences in a war. Leah Grover, who I mentioned, is writing a very personal story about her husband, the passing of her husband, but that involves other people and other family members. And so my question to all of them was, so I had, I had to do this in my memoir. I had to change the name of, of a public official because, because of potential legal issues and, and what have you, even though I think a memoir, it gives you, gives you some, some legal protections as, as your recollection. But anyway, but in, in war and in the passing of a loved one, there are all kinds of emotions and moral transgressions and ethical issues, yeah. people not presenting themselves in their best light at unguarded and weak moments. How do you tell their story as part of that larger narrative, even if you know that they're not going to come out looking good in in a in a moment. Well, that depends on how important it is, is it to you to yeah. have that in the story. I mean, yeah, a memoir yeah. does not mean you have to tell everything. Yeah, uh, I remember when uh, Beverly Donofrio came to Colombia and she had wrote the memoir "Writing in Cars with Boys," mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. she says there are things about my mother I'm not putting in any memoir. That's up to the memorist. The memorist can uh, put in what they want to put in and leave out what they want to leave out. It, it kind of depends on how important it is to have this in the story. You know, some memorists are, are like, you know, I'm going to tell the unvarnished, I'm going to tell everything and let the, uh, let the chips the, fall where they may. Fall where they may. Yeah. And other memorists say, you know, I'm not going to destroy a relationship that's important to me yeah. to put something in a book that is, you know, that is not going to bother the reader because the reader's not going to know about it anyway. 
And, and just like, you know, I'll go back to that thing of when we're sitting around telling stories to each other, we don't tell our friends every freaking thing. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. all kinds of things about ourselves, about our relatives, about our lovers that we are we are, do not tell yeah. to a group of people. And, yeah. But that doesn't mean that what we do tell is somehow not legitimate because we didn't tell this other stuff. Uh-huh. Or that uh-huh. what we do tell is is less true. Now it may be it may leave out some context, but that doesn't mean that the story itself is not is not true. You're not being true yeah. to the story. Yeah. But and but then even then to ask yourself, but if it did change how they would view it, does that matter? Yeah. And again, that's up to only the only the only author of the memoir can make that decision. Nobody can make that decision for you. At the end of the day, it's got to be you know mm-hmm. you deciding uh, to do it. You know, sometimes people will put stuff out there because they find out that you know somebody else is digging. Yeah. And that this is going to come out. And so they want to be at least get the first take yeah. on how something is, is 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 viewed. But that's oftentimes with famous people. It's not necessarily with, you know. In, in the presentation, you offered several examples of how and where uh, critically acclaimed authors began their memoirs, which I, I thought was was absolutely brilliant. Should it be a part of every writer's process and research to read as much of other writers in their genre, in, in this case, memoirs? I, I would say in it, that's, that's true in the case of anything okay. you're writing. Okay. If you want to write memoirs, read memoirs. If you want to uh, write detective fiction, read detective fiction. If you want to write nonfiction about uh, relationships with animals, read nonfiction about relationships with animals. Uh, and so on and so on and because so on. There's, because there's patterns and rhythms to, to well, each of just, those genres. It's just yeah? what an artist does. You know, yeah, it's a yeah. uh, 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 comparison I, I use is it's like not reading what you want to write. It's like someone saying, I want to be a film director, but I don't really want to watch movies. Or someone saying, I want to be a jazz pianist. But I don't want to listen to Jelly Roll Morton or Thelonious <laughs> Monk or Mary Lou Williams or Mary McPartland or Bill Evans or Keith yeah. Jarrett. You know, I don't want to listen to anybody or Oscar Peterson. I don't want to listen to Art Tatum. I don't listen to anybody playing jazz piano. <laughs> I just want to, you know, give me some tips on how I can play jazz piano and then I'll just go, I'll just go from there. And 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 folks who want to write need to see. The reading is not separate from the writing. Yeah, it is yeah. your reading is part of your writing process. Mm-hmm. It, it in the same way that um, a musician listens to music, not just to kind of listen to it, but that the listening of to music is part of a musician's process for mm-hmm. making music. So that you should not see a writer shouldn't see the two as separate. They should see it as this part of my writing process is that I read. Mm-hmm. And, and if there's a particular kind of writing you want to do, you want to write YA, you should read a lot of YA. And then that's how you should go about it. And then that should just be a regular part of your process. And you should see it as a regular part of your writing process. I said uh, uh, this past weekend, you know, we stand on the shoulders of the writers who have come before us. Yeah, yeah. And while no writer is showing us the way, every writer is showing us a way. A way. A way to possibly do it a way uh, of doing the writing in a way that 
with some modification and some uh, adapting because we can never just take somebody else's style whole hog and just kind of, you know, put it on ourselves like sure. a, a sports jacket. There always has to be some fine tuning to it, some mm -hmm. modifying mm -hmm. of it in some way. But, you know, they're showing us a way. If you read a lot of the writing, you're, and, and, and in particular, read a lot of the kind of writing that's the best stuff. Yeah. You're, that's going to, you're going to start to internalize a lot of really good writing habits <laughs> just due to the fact that you're, you're doing so much reading. My advice to, to, to aspiring writers is make, make your reading uh, a, a regular part of yeah. your, your writing process. Read, read the kinds of books you want to write. Now, Toni Morrison said she started writing the kinds of books she had always wanted to read and it never found. I can't think of a better marching yeah. order for, for a writer, yeah. but also read the kinds of books in terms of genre that you want to write. Absolutely. This one I wrestled with a little bit. Storylines. We're all deeply immersed in, in patternistic storylines, story setups, the setup and climax and resolution and, and, and all yeah, that. Yes, yes. Exposition, rising action, climax, falling yes. action, denouement. That's it. That template doesn't necessarily match the pattern of our lie. And uh, yeah, or, because or does sometimes it? we don't know where the climax is. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> for, for some of us, the climax happened 20 years ago. And for some <laughs> of us, the climax is yet to come. Although sometimes... Even though I, I'd, argue, I'd argue this, I, I, yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off, oh, um, no. but uh, I, I'd argue this, that if you're, if you're writing a memoir, that... Mm -hmm imbued in that even if you don't recognize it is a natural climax you're 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 coming to some realization you're coming you're 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 struggling to overcome something and and that's your climax yeah that could yeah. be that too uh but you can write a memoir that doesn't have that as the form at all yeah one of the examples that i used this past weekend was the opening to Lee Young Lee's memoir, The Winged Seed, which begins with a dream mm -hmm. that he has about his dead father. Mm -hmm. But that, that memoir, I mean, Lee Young Lee is an incredible poet. That memoir weaves in and out of memory and, and into very poetic language mm -hmm. of, of, of description at some points is describing imagery from his memory. And it's only when you're into the sense a little bit that you realize where it's coming from mm -hmm. or, or where it's located. But then other times he weaves into, some of this is a memoir of his parents, yeah. of his mother and what her life was like in China, but long before Lee Young Lee was born. And we assume these are from stories that his mother told him. And, and, which is really important when we think of how much of our, our understanding of what our family is, is is based, in fact, on things we've been told. Yeah. Things our parents told us, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and that growing up, our mm -hmm. perception of our parents' lives are oftentimes, most of it, just stuff that they've told us. And, and then our imagining, I mean, me thinking, uh, my father telling me how as a kid growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, one of his jobs was to go to the railroad tracks where the coal trains had gone through at night and sometimes, yeah. you know, hunks of coal would fall off and he'd be there with a coffee can looking, 
the seed to pick up, a, you know, some coal and put it in the coffee can. I, I never forgot that story. But in, in my mind, what I saw was the freight train line directly east of our house. But I that imagery stuck in my head. And him telling me about how there were holes in the roof of the room that he slept in. And how he would lie there at night in the dark and he could see the stars through some of the holes in wow. the roof. And how he would lie awake at night listening to the radio, which was broadcasting classical music from New York. Wow. And that was a very powerful image that I had in my head. Yeah. And, and these were some of the founding blocks about what I imagined my father's life was. Yeah. Growing up, you know, going with my grandmother from house to house. My grandmother would do washing for white people. And she would take my father along and she'd be, have a bushel basket. Mm -hmm. She'd take the clothes and take them back home, wash them, iron them, et cetera, et cetera, bring them back to the white people. But having these images, these stories, this is how I, I began to, as a boy, and I'm talking like, you know, six, seven years old, wow. beginning to have some concept of this is what my father's life was and this is what my family history. You brought, you brought up this about so let me let me ask ask you this in in that regard in those those memories and you said this during the presentation that the memoir used to be the the purview of of the wealthy the famous of of kings and politicians uh the the power elite so to speak but hearing your impressions about your dad is there a democratization of history and communal conversation on critical issues, especially on race, that is, is an essential part of memoirs and memoir writing? Absolutely. I mean, what has happened in the wake of books like, you know, Mary Carr's Liars Club, mm -hmm. which was one of the first, many say the first everyday person's memoir to sell a lot of copies uh, and get a lot of attention. Although there have been some others too. There's been a real hunger on the part of readers for story. So, you know, we never get tired of hearing a good story. Yeah. You can, uh, you know, all it takes to stop someone at work from doing what they're doing usually is to come up to them and say, did you hear? <laughs> Did you hear what? Did you hear what happened? Mm -hmm. Oh, you're not going to believe what happened. You're not. You're not going to believe. And a lot of times, that person wants to stop what they're doing. What? <laughs> <laughs> because everybody wants to hear a good story. Yeah. And a lot of these, and just like folks have been enthralled forever, sitting around a dining room table or a barbecue or a back porch or a campfire or whatever. And hearing a good story, people love to hear a good story on the page. Mm -hmm. there, there is a hunger, uh, the, an insatiable, you can say that people have an insatiable hunger. And what's happened is, is that, that that hunger is what's driving this explosion of memoir, this explosion of personal essay. You now have all kinds of organizations here in Chicago, for instance, Second Story, of which I'm a member. Uh, also things like uh, Story Lab, This Much is True, et cetera, that specialize in the personal essay. And they're very popular. And yeah. they're very popular because people just love a good story. Some novels that, have, like I say, have just moved away from story. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in trying to do 
something else, which is fine, which is all well and fine. But at the same time, people still want to have story. You know, when we're little kids, it's like, mommy, read me a story. Daddy, grandma, read me a story. Grandpa, tell me a story. And that never goes away. You know, that, that never stops. Yeah, and, yeah. and so part of the reason why there's been this great growth in memoir is that there's been this great growth in a desire for, uh, uh, you know, tell me a good story. Mm-hmm. I, I'd also argue that deep down inside, it, it harkens back to that, um, that communal common storytelling tradition that we all, um, that we all come from. Brother, you're, you're a treasure. Uh, and, and I could talk to you all day, but I, but I've got I've got one more question. Uh, okay. And is there a proper way to end a memoir? In other words, I think a lot of us tell the story because maybe it's maybe it's cathartic for us, um, but we also hope that it'll be cathartic for other people. That other people will learn will learn a lesson or 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 you know something. Um, yeah. but should people aspire to end with a big idea or a lesson learned or a great thought, your, your thoughts on, on ending? I think, well, memoir. first of all, you know, a memoir doesn't have to cover your whole life. Yes. Uh, a memoir yeah. may cover a certain period of your life. Yeah. yeah. In which case the, uh, the story isn't over, but that arc of your life may be. Nabokov's memoir didn't cover anything about his life in the United States, which was most intriguing. A lot of Mm -hmm. interesting things happened to him. Uh, Turned out Harvard had a whole basement full of butterfly specimens and moth specimens that hadn't been indexed. They were just sitting there, you know, like picture frame Mm -hmm. cases that they Mm -hmm. put butterfly and moth specimens in and and it hadn't been indexed. And of course, Nabokov had been into butterflies since he was a kid. And so he indexed the whole darn thing None of that's in his memoir. Sometimes with a memoir, you're not really writing your whole life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. up to this point. <clears throat> you're kind of laser focusing in on a particular arc yeah. uh, of life. Mary Carr's Liars Club doesn't, uh, it, it covers basically the part of her life when she's a girl. Mm-hmm. Her second memoir then went into uh, when she was older. Uh, Esmeralda Santiago's When I Was Puerto Rican is about the first, her first er- early years. And then she writes a second memoir after that that's almost a woman is the title of it and that carries on with another part of her life so sometimes uh, what you're really looking at is what part of my life am I writing about Mm -hmm. and how did that arc in Mm -hmm. what seems like to be a line of demarcation sometimes it's you know it covers up until you moved away from home or it covers up until you the years you lived in such and such a place or it covers up from the time you were a little kid to when you were in high school or, yeah. or something like that. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, that's in that, you know, when you look at that arc of your life, yeah. uh, you realize, well, this is kind of where the transition period happened. And this seems like a natural place to end a story. The thing that I would always remember is, well, when you, when you tell stories about yourself, how do you end them? We learn a lot about storytelling from the stories that we tell and the stories that are told to us. Yeah. And so we know a lot intuitive. If we look at our oral storytelling, that can work out actually a lot of things about where do I start? <laughs> What's the structure of this? How, how do I end it? And, and just with the, the, the thing you're just mentioning about memoir, you know, it's kind of a case 
as with all writing, where the writer says, it's important to me to tell you this story this way. And a summation, a summation of a big idea can be can be kind of a dead weight. Well, I mean, it, there may be if there's a big idea that's there, because sometimes things happen, and we realize at the at when it happened. Yeah. When my father was killed in a car accident in 1981, I knew this was a line of demarcation in my life. Mm-hmm. When I l- took the train to Washington D.C. to go to graduate school, after having lived in Chicago, I was in my mid 30s by then. I knew this was a line of demarcation of sorts. And that was very clear to me. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there can be something quite big. And if it's there, fine. Mm -hmm. But again, when we tell a good story to people, no one ever says to us, but where's the big idea that's supposed (laughs) to end this story? You know, you know, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, a good story is justification in and of itself. Uh, If there's a big idea with it, you know, Nabokov beginning his memoir, The Cradle Rocks Above the Abyss, blah, da, 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 da. We know that our lives are but a brief period of light between two eternities of darkness. Okay, fine. <laughs> if you got that, you got that. But you don't have to have it. And, it. and it's never a good idea to try to force it. If there is something there strong, it'll, you know, it'll probably, it should come out naturally as you read the material and realize oh this is what is emerging to me and it may very well be something that wasn't even necessarily in your thinking when you started Mm -hmm. but you don't have to try to force feed some big idea in at the end if you take the best story you have and tell it as best you can and that that's going to have to do because that's all any of us can do uh you know and if there's something big there and if if the big thing comes to you later write an essay (laughs) There you, go. there you go. Eric Charles May is an associate professor in the creative writing program at Columbia College in Chicago and the author of the novel Bedrock Faith. The... Oh, one last thing. Yes. And it was named One Book, One Chicago. I was just about to say that. You, oh, good. You, you, you beat me to it, but I'm just going to repeat it because I kind of talked over you there. Bedrock Faith, the 2021 One Book, One Chicago selection by the Chicago Pu- Public Library. Great minds think alike, <laughs> buddy. And a 2014 <laughs> notable African-American title by Publishers Weekly. His website is ericcharlesmay.com. Man, do I get college credit for this? <laughs> Eric, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Our featured indie artist is Chicago legend, the storyteller, and Grammy-nominated Ray Grant, who has just released a new song titled Siesta Key. Think Gordon Lightfoot in a Hawaiian shirt, and you're close. Ray Grant is a Chicagoan born and raised on the south side from the back of the yards neighborhood. Ray picked up his first guitar as a teenager for just $3 and taught himself how to play. His first 1990 album, It's About Time, earned Grant a Grammy nomination in 1991. Not bad for a self-taught kid from a working-class Chicago neighborhood. His website is raygrant.com. This is Siesta Key. Take me across the bridge To a little island It's got so much to give Blue skies and breezes With white powder beaches 
Just the key. 